You're listening to the Child Life On Call podcast. Today's episode is Stephanie's story, a daughter with functional short bowel syndrome. I'm your host, certified child life specialist, Katie Taylor. Hi, and welcome to the Child Life On Call podcast. When your child is sick, the whole world seems to stop in its tracks. Plans and priorities change, and your number one job becomes figuring out how to get your child well again. For some of us, rest, medications, and relaxation can do the trick. But for others, it takes more. It takes countless doctor appointments, invasive medical testing, therapy, surgeries, the list goes on, and then you still may not have all the answers or results you were hoping for. This podcast features parents of children that have an illness or medical condition and gives them a place to share their own journeys and experiences. We will talk about the ups and the downs, the highs and the lows, but one thing seems to remain the same. Children are resilient and teach us more about ourselves and the world than we could ever imagine. Thank you so much for lending a listening ear and opening up your heart to these families and this podcast. I'm your host, Katie Taylor. hardest thing is our entire life revolves around it um it is kind of like all consuming her immune system isn't great so like the first two years of her life we isolated during flu and rsv season so that meant like nobody came over we didn't go anywhere i mean we've canceled her own birthday party and not all the time but sometimes i'm like this is all i am it's like like a medical provider, early intervention provider, like it's like, where's our kind of normal life, you know? Hello, and welcome to season three of the Child Life On Call podcast. As Stephanie has just so eloquently put it, being a parent is one of the hardest jobs on earth. And when your child has medical needs or is sick, it can feel overwhelming, isolating, and like you have a thousand different jobs. This podcast serves as a place where parents can share their real and honest feelings and experiences. The first two seasons of this podcast have taught us that parents have so many of the same feelings, regardless of diagnosis. As a child life specialist and a mom, I feel completely honored to talk with parents who have dealt with and are dealing with children who have complex medical needs or have gone through a life-changing experience with an illness or medical condition. My hope is that this podcast finds other parents and lets them know that they are not alone. Today, I am sharing with you my interview with Stephanie, a proud mom to Adeline. After a long fertility journey and a high-risk, stressful, and very sick pregnancy, Stephanie gave birth at 26 weeks due to severe preeclampsia. Stephanie shares her journey in the NICU and describes Addie's difficulty with digestion and her long journey that led to a diagnosis of functional short bowel syndrome. Stephanie shares her perspective about important topics like how having a child with quote-unquote invisible disease can be a blessing and a curse, how she actually felt relief when they received Addie's diagnosis, and how she handles tough-to-answer questions from well-meaning friends and family. Stephanie talks about how she's been an advocate for her daughter and fought for a diagnosis and how she continues to fight for her daughter to give her the best care possible. She and her family travel every four to six weeks to Boston from Baltimore just to get Addie around and in front of the experts in her field. We get started hearing a bit from Stephanie and more about her and her family. 
So um, I grew up outside of Bucks County or in Bucks County, Pennsylvania, which is outside of Philly. And I moved to Maryland for college and met my husband when I was 19. And so when I graduated, I just ended up staying in the state. Um, and we have been together since I've been 19 and we've been married about eight years. It's crazy to think we've been together since 2001, but we settled in Maryland. We live like in a small country town now, um, in Carroll County and live across the street from a river and a train track. And we, um, started trying to have kids probably when I was around 30 and started having difficulties like right away, ended up at a fertility clinic. Um, and we conceived Adeline after seven rounds of IVF. So we, we did fertility treatments for three years before I got pregnant. Man, so she was a precious package that y'all had been waiting for and praying for when she arrived. For sure. Precious cargo that took a long time. And yeah, we miscarried once and then got, I got pregnant again right after that. And then, um, so yeah, definitely, it was definitely like a, I thought that was going to be like our journey. <laughs> like that was going to be like our story. Like, Right. Trials and tribulations of infertility and trying to get pregnant. Um, that once we got pregnant, like, okay, that was our like tough time. And now we can just be parents and have like typical parent struggles. But I was wrong. (laughs) (laughs) That was a bit of a warm up. (laughs) Yeah. It was just a warm up for like, Uh, oh, no, no, not over yet. (laughs) Strap in. Well, tell us a little bit about your and Addie's story from the beginning. So it was, you know, I got pregnant with, when I got pregnant with Adeline, as soon as I kind of graduated from the fertility center, which was about 12 weeks, um, I started going to like a typical gynecologist and like the very first test that we had, um, blood tests and things like that, that you do, um, between like 12 and 16 weeks came back abnormal and it just kind of continued from there with like abnormalities in my hormone levels, abnormalities on ultrasounds, abnormalities with growth. We didn't quite know what was going on. We did know that she was really small. Um, she was measuring like in the less than one percentile throughout all my pregnancy. Um, We knew that I had some restricted blood flow to the placenta, so that could make her me at risk for delivering early or having preeclampsia. And I had some abnormal hormone levels, which could also cause her to be born early. Um, It didn't quite explain the growth issues, but we ended up um, getting some additional testing and we were told that there was a 10% chance she would have Down syndrome. Um, We did some additional testing and ruled that out. So there was definitely throughout my entire pregnancy, just a lot of stuff that, you know, wasn't looking great, but it didn't necessarily point to like one specific reason. And it also 
there were women who had similar issues to me that carried their baby to full term. Um, so it was kind of just, I was seen by a high risk doctor. I had weekly ultrasounds, So I saw her every single week. Um, and it was kind of one of these things like everything could be fine or everything might not be fine. And so it was definitely a very stressful pregnancy. Um, I was also had, um, I was very sick during my pregnancy, throwing up a lot. So that just like added to the stress and pressure of like her, me feeling like I'm not giving her enough, you know, and all that kind of stuff. And then starting around when I was 22 weeks pregnant, I started to have high blood pressure and it just kind of snowballed from there. It just kept going up and up and up. And I was put on bed rest at 23 weeks. And then I was put on a more restricted um, bed rest, I think at like 20, maybe between 24 and 25 weeks where this was like, you can't do anything like you. And then um, my blood pressure just kept going up and they said, you know, let's bring you in to get some injections that would help her lungs develop. I was um, 25 weeks pregnant at this point. And within like 10, 11 hours of being admitted to the hospital, I ended up giving birth because um, I, my organs were starting to fail. I had severe um, preeclampsia. Um, I had blurred vision. I was having difficulty breathing. Um, my blood work was horrendous. Um, and so they kind of said to us, like, you have to deliver her tonight because obviously I didn't want to, you know, I wanted her to bake as long as possible, but it was like, you're, you're not going to live like you, we have to, she's not going to live. Like we have to save both of you. And so, um, she was born at 26 weeks via emergency C-section and she weighed one pound, eight ounces and was 12 inches long. Oh. I know she was actually small for that. She, she actually was more like a 23 weeker. Um, she okay. still was small even for a preemie. Mm. Um, and so that's kind of like our birth story. Um, you know, just how, how the pregnancy was and how we ended up delivering her so early. So I guess she spent some time in the NICU then after that. Yes. So she spent, um, we were in the NICU for 114 days and it was a really tumultuous, um, experience because, you know, a lot of preemies have to go through quite a bit when they're in the NICU, but you can have like a typical preemie experience where you just need time and breathing support to grow and get stronger. Ad Adeline was really just never that stable. Um, from like a GI perspective, she just never was able to handle her feeds. She was always struggled with growth. She had difficulty pooping. She threw up all the time. She would, her belly would get so distended and hard that she would have to go on NPO and not be able to be fed. And we just kind of dealt with that throughout her entire experience in the NICU. Um, she contracted a terrible um, GI infection called neck. Um, we almost lost her 50% of babies, um, 
who get neck die and she did not die. Um, she survived, but it was, that was at three weeks old. That was like incredibly terrifying. Um, and then after that, we ended up, we just kept having issues with the same things I was saying. Like she just couldn't handle food. We would feed her and she would get really, really, really sick. And we'd have to stop feeding her, giving her antibiotics, letting her belly rest. And then we'd start feeding her and like the same cycle would continue. And she was just constantly throwing up, constipated, distended belly. Like a lot of the reasons why she had difficulty breathing was because her stomach would get so big, it would push on her lungs. So it, you know, she didn't, she actually was able to get off of her CPAP when she was 36 weeks Um, but she had to keep being on breathing support because of her stomach being so big that it was putting pressure on her lungs. So, um, about three months old, we decided after like a lot of kind of pushing our doctors that, you know, there was something else going on and we needed to like figure it out. They found like a blockage in her intestines. And so she had surgery. She was less than three pounds and she had like a pretty invasive GI surgery and they found the stricture blockage and they fixed it, which that can happen from neck. And honestly, at that point we thought she's cured. Mm -hmm. I mean, this has been the problem all along. The tough thing with Addie that's been kind of her like common theme is a lot of stuff doesn't show up on tests for her. And so she had like every type of tests you could imagine to see if she had this blockage and it didn't show up. And then when he actually went in to do the surgery, he said, um, you know, he could barely fit like a ballpoint pen through, through that area of her, like the tip of the pen through where the blockage was. So she was kind of unique in that way that, and that happened again at a later time, but So we weren't seeing anything in the test, but we knew something was wrong. And it really was when I kind of like jumped into my role as like medical advocate, because I just kind of knew in my mommy gut that like, you know, they would talk about reflux and refer to her as a happy spitter and say her belly was like a CPAP belly because some kids on a CPAP breathing device get like a kind of like an air filled tummy. And I just like didn't buy it, you know, and I really didn't know anything about anything, but I just didn't think that that made sense. And so we really pushed them to do the surgery. And once they did the surgery and found the blockage, John and I, my husband, we thought she was cured. Like we thought this is it. We fixed, we found it, we fixed it. And like, now we can like move on with our life and like get our baby home. But that like, wasn't the case at all. Wow. So from the beginning, you had that gut feeling that, that made you push. Did you have any advocates in the hospital who listened to you? Like, or anybody who you felt comfortable enough to, to speak your mind to, do you feel like they kept, kept you in the loop with everything? So I was always in the NICU. Um, I talked to everybody about my concerns. I was never really that quiet. I did come from a background of special ed advocacy. So I worked as a director of a school for kids, um, with autism. And many of these kids came from 
schools in which they were failing. So part of my job was to kind of advocate for what they needed in order to learn. So I did have that kind of background. Mm -hmm. Um, I felt comfortable telling everyone. I think that the nurses who spent more time with her on a day-to-day basis kind of felt more like they kind of were on the same page with me more so than her doctors. Mm -hmm. And I feel like part of the problem we had with her was that when you would stop feeding her, things would get better like pretty quickly. So whenever we would stop feeding her, you know, GI would come to do a consult or surgery would come to do a consult and she would like look great. (laughs) And then we would start feeding her again. And like the same cycle would kind of, so it, it's, it was a really hard thing. Like I kind of felt like unless you were with her all the time and like, unless you really saw like how she was when she was vomiting, like her facial expressions and that kind of thing. Like I, I, I don't know. I definitely was never quiet. I told everyone. I talked to everyone about everything. I still do that. Like I talked to, if I have a question, I ask like every single provider the same question because I want all the different perspectives. Um, there was like a social worker at the hospital who was helpful, but I think it was really my husband and I who had to kind of like lead the charge. Like we had to say, okay, we want a family meeting. Right. And we sat at next to her isolate and I had like my hand inside her isolate and was like pumping because I pumped and she was like holding my finger and we just sat there with like her neonatologist and we're just like this like plan isn't working anymore like we need to do something else and like went round and round and round and round until it was like okay I think we're gonna do the exploratory surgery and it was such a scary thing as a parent to basically ask for someone to operate on your three pound baby when you don't know if that's going to fix anything. Like you had, we had no idea. Like we were taking a huge chance by saying, yes, we want you to go in. And they said, you understand that we might not find anything and we could have like opened her for nothing. And we had to say like, yes. And I, didn't know if it was like the dumbest decision I ever made in my life or if it, you know, it was like such a weird thing to like push for your like baby to have surgery when she's that fragile and like that young. And there were so many risks because of her being premature and her lungs and her weight, like just anesthesia and being a preemie is so dangerous. So it was a really weird experience to like say, okay, yes, I want you to do this. (laughs) I want you to be more invasive. And, you know, I think too, they were being careful because she was so fragile and and wanted to make sure that they tried every possible thing. But I feel like we, we came to the conclusion that there was something else going on before everyone else, you know? Yeah, absolutely. You followed your gut, as you said, and you advocated and, I mean, they had to have thought, you know, these parents don't want their their child to go to surgery just because. And I'm glad they listened. I'm glad they listened to you. Yeah. So what did they end up finding and how did she officially kind of get the diagnosis that she has? And can you talk to us about that? Um, of course. So after that first surgery that we thought she was cured, we actually started having the exact same thing happen again. 
So even though she didn't have the blockage anymore, she was still not tolerating her feeds. She was still having all of the same issues that she was having before. Um, so we were kind of devastated. Um, and she ended up, they ended up letting her go home, which when I think back, it was, it was kind of crazy, but about a month after the surgery, she went home and then we just ended up back in the hospital and we ended up switching to a different hospital that had specialized a little bit, um, more in pediatric GIs. But we just ended up inpatient for like several, a couple months. And basically this is what we did. We went to the hospital because she was excessively throwing up. She would have blood in her stool. She was screaming and in pain. Her stomach was distended. We would go to the hospital. They would put her MPO. Um, they would do some tests. They would say everything looks good and they would send us home. And then we would go home, start feeding her. And then the same thing would happen. So we did this for like three months and <laughs> we ended up in a very similar situation where we were sitting down with a family meeting with surgery, GI, um, because our surgeon at the time thought we should go in and do an exploratory surgery again at six months old and GI thought that she should just go home again. And so they were in disagreement. And so we sat down again and had to fight for our child to go into surgery because we knew something was really, really wrong. And so we ended up doing the surgery and thank goodness we did because when they went in, they found that she had malrotation of her intestines and she had volvulus. And so malrotation is just like her intestines are switching or twisted, excuse me. And volvulus is the blood flow is cut off to the intestines. So your intestine can die when the blood flow is cut off um, due to the malrotation. Addie was one of the rare 5% that this did not show up on any of her studies, less than 5% of patients have ever had that happen. Um, they have an up, a lower GI study and upper GI study can diagnose it 95% of the times she had at this point, probably six or seven of them and they never saw anything. She also had a rare sort of intermittent malrotation. So it would rotate and then I guess unrotate. I don't know if that's a word, but, um, so when we would, you know, I guess give her gut rest, like her, it would untwist and then she would be great. And then we would put pressure on her gut and it would retwist. And so they had to do like a major, major, major surgery. And she had her appendix removed. She had body parts. She had like her intestines untwisted, anchored down. She had her spleen moved. It was insane. And we were in the hospital for months. Um, she had this procedure called the LADS procedure. And again, we thought at this point that she was going to be fine. Um, that of course she would need time, but that we would be able, her gut would start functioning normally. And, um, although after this surgery, things were a lot better, we still continued to have issues. Um, we still were in and out of the hospital. She went from having an, a feeding tube in her nose to getting her, um, 
to having it surgically placed. Um, and it took probably another seven months of kind of this constant issue to get the diagnosis of functional short bowel syndrome. And part of the reason it was so hard to get this diagnosis is because many kids, when they have malrotation or they have neck or they have a stricture, they lose part of their intestine. So the, the surgeon actually physically removes part of it. And then they're diagnosed with short bowel syndrome. And, you know, it's kind of an easy thing to diagnose. Addie didn't lose any of her bowel. Um, and everyone told us that this was such a great thing. Like she had malrotation and she has all of her intestines. And like, this is like the best outcome you could have hoped for given the situation. But when she was 13 months old, finally, this doctor said to me in round, she has functional short bowel syndrome. And I was like, well, I knew about short bowel because I had connected with other medical moms and Addie had such similar issues to them. And I was on the short bowel Facebook group, even though Addie didn't have short bowel diagnosis. And he said, Basically, the injury, she has functional short bowel because anatomically everything's there. All her intestines are there, but um, they're not all functioning. So basically, due to the injury to her gut, she has, you know, functional short bowel syndrome. And so that was when we got diagnosed. And to be honest with you, I was mostly relieved. I was like, finally, I can like call it something like, it's not this mystery. It's not this, like everything. They just would diagnose her symptoms. Like she has constipation. She has reflux. She has absorption issues. She has, you know, um, she's failure to thrive. She has dysmotility. All of those kind of described like more of her symptoms and not this like overarching disease. So when she was diagnosed, I felt this like instant sort of relief and it kind of just clicked that like, okay, this makes sense because this explains everything we've been dealing with for the last, you know, 13 months of her life. Um, I mean, it's not like it's easy to hear, but it, it, I didn't feel this like doom and gloom and I, I felt better to actually have the diagnosis, which I know is, might not be the same for most parents. Um, it, it was more comforting for me to have it than to not and live in that, like, well, then what is it? Well, what's causing this? Why is she having so many troubles still, you know? Right. Well, it's almost like instead of having to go in and like explain all her symptoms, like you said, you've been validated. There's a name for it. Next time you go into the hospital, this is exactly what she has. And right. now we can move forward and get our next steps done. Yes. And you know, with GI stuff and, and with short bowel syndrome, it's an invisible disease. So kids can look really great. That's like a blessing and a curse. And so there is, was this level of like, you know, if I, if a doctor, would see her and she was happy and like she always like really performs when she like when doctors would do rounds like she would be up all night crying and like throwing up and then like 
everyone would do rounds and she'd like show them all her tricks and like blow kisses and like Well it's I love it because she also gets all her tests are like perfect, right? She's yes. just, she's an A student. <laughs> yes. And she like and they would be like, Well, she looks good, you know? And it's like Oh my gosh. So there was this level. I just always felt like I was trying to like prove something and that would make me feel so crazy. Like I, I have to like convince other people that my kid is sick in some ways, but it is true. And a lot of parents of kids with similar issues feel the exact same way. It's not like, you know, our kids can look really good. Um, it, you know, it's not just like something like a broken arm where it's really easy to see and really easy to fix. It's sure. gray. It's hard just to figure out, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And I'm sure it's hard to even to have to explain it, um, is exhausting to people who have no sense or idea about what you're going through. Right. Right. For sure. Um, you know, and most people just want to know like, well, then when will she be better? You know, that's really probably like the like if anyone talks to me about anything like her feeding tube or her growth issues or like anything about her, probably like the most common question is like, well, then will she grow out of it? You know, or when will she be better? Or like, when will her tube come out? Like people, it gives them, I think, comfort to know that like she'll eventually be okay. You know, they want that kind of confirmation. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You're like, wouldn't that be nice? I know. (laughs) true. So, uh, her growth was kind of an issue. And so after you got this diagnosis, then what, what were the next steps to get her growing and able to get nutrition? So after we got the diagnosis, we ended up starting her on, um, TPN, which is, um, she had a feeding tube, but she still wasn't growing and she was only able to tolerate about 30% of the calories she needed. So she actually stopped developing, um, like cognitively and she started having regression. Like there were things that she was kind of babbling that she stopped babbling. And so we were super concerned. And so we ended up placing a central line and most people may know of it if they've known someone who has cancer and they have a port, um, that they receive chemo through, um, it's a little bit different, but basically Adeline would receive IV nutrition through um, a Broviac catheter placed in her heart. And so she received, um, she was on TPN 24 hours a day. She received like her fat, her lipids, or her, sorry, her fat, all her vitamins, um, all her hydration through um, her more, basically a more permanent IV. And then, um, that helped her start to grow. Um, and we also did, she still had the feeding tube and she still received some of her nutrition through her feeding tube, but we could kind of take that pressure off her gut. So she wouldn't be vomiting all day and constipated and like so miserable, um, because her quality of life was pretty terrible. Um, in terms of like her comfort level. I mean, she was projectile vomiting like 10 to 20 times a day. We were having to give her three enemas a day. I mean, the amount of care she had was insane. Um, we ended up eventually, so the TPN 
was huge. Um, it was also like a huge undertaking for our family because you now have a 13 month old who <laughs> is connected to an IV pole all day long. Yeah. Um, and it's extremely like dangerous. Like it's, you have to deal with it sterilely. Like if you, you have to change the dressing, it's like a whole production. Um, it was, intense. Like if she had any fever, she had to be admitted immediately to the hospital because she had a central line infection, which she did end up having a couple of them. But we did get her growing through um, TPN. And then eventually we ended up switching her care. Um, we ended up transferring her care to Boston Children's Hospital. Um, they have basically a clinic, which is called their care clinic, which was originally designed for kids with short bowel syndrome. Now um, it's called the Center for Advanced Intestinal Rehab Rehabilitation. It used to be for just kids with short bowel. And they are number one children's hospital in the country. And they have like some of the top doctors in the world who specialize in kids with short bowel. I just found that so many providers that we were seeing were just kind of like, oh, I've never seen this before, or this is brand new, and making a lot of guesses. And so we just decided that we needed somebody who was an expert in her rare disease. Um, we needed somebody with a lot more experience. So we now travel um, every four to six weeks to Boston from Baltimore, outside of Baltimore. And that has helped her tremendously. Um, she's been able to start growing. It's still a struggle. And we actually, this July, were able to get at nearly three years old, she had her central line removed. We call it her TP Endance Day because it was July 5th. Um, <laughs> and so that was huge. And they have just been like instrumental in improving her quality of life, improving our quality of life, making sure she's growing giving us like the best new medications out there. We've had all these incredible tests that we've only been able, you can only get done at two or three hospitals. And so that has really been like a key to getting her like, growing, but it still is a struggle. Believe me. It's like the still something that we are dealing with, but it's a lot better. Had, is she able to take anything by mouth or drink or eat or what does that look like for her? She's been in feeding therapy since she's been 12 months old. Um, we go weekly and she is able to take things by mouth. She um, just doesn't take that much. So she did my production when I was pumping was always very low and when I Addie came home from the NICU, it pretty much diminished to maybe like I was producing like an ounce a day. So Addie actually did start to breastfeed. And it was this weird thing where I was so upset about my production, but it actually ended up being a good thing because my breast never made her sick. It was like never too much for her wow. because I produced so little. So we, she did breastfeed forever. We did not stop breastfeeding until she was, so we started at 13 months and we stopped when she was two and a half. So That's she amazing. had, yes, it was. I, I like 
she wanted to breastfeed a lot and she did it to comfort. She did it for oral motor stimulation. She did it. And it was just this perfect. It ended up being perfect that I didn't produce that much. So she did breastfeed and she does eat now. She eats like small amounts of soft food, like soft cheeses, soft fruits. Um, it really can be up and down. There's days she doesn't eat a thing and there's days she'll like surprise us and eat like half an egg or recently <laughs> she tried, <laughs> she tried broccoli. Um, right now. What did she think of that? Oh gosh. She, she chewed it up and was like make like telling us she liked it, but made like the grossest face. And then after she <laughs> chewed it all up, she spit it out, which is kind of like typical for kids who have her kind of issue when they're first trying a new food, they'll like taste it, chew it, but won't swallow. Oh, that's <laughs> and so, so funny. So she, and you know what? She tried it again tonight at dinner and she did actually swallow just the like leafy part. Oh, awesome. I know. So we were <laughs> like so excited, but she does eat by mouth. She can eat like she doesn't have any like kind of restrictions. Um, she can pay for it sometimes when she eats a little more than usual with her gut, but she just doesn't eat that much. And she, um, isn't consistent in any kind of issue. Like we're having some issues right now where, um, she got sick a little bit more than often than like, she's like not going to want to eat, you know, she's nausea, stomach pain, like who wants to eat when you're like that? So we definitely see like ups and downs, but I'm really proud of her. She went through a period of time where she wouldn't even let anybody like touch her mouth from like six months old to 12 months old. We really just worked on her even letting me like put my hands on her lips because she was so adverse to like any thing coming near her because every time she had a bottle, she would be so sick and in so much pain. So it was like, I don't want, I don't want any, like she stopped taking a pacifier at six months old. Like, so it's definitely one of the hardest therapies that we have to do. Like she makes the slowest progress and she has the most regressions, but I'm proud of like where she is. It's just, you know, it's not enough. So she gets all of her calories right now through her feeding tube. And then anything she eats by mouth is just kind of like a bonus. What would you say are and were and kind of have been the hardest parts about dealing with a child who has this functional short bowel syndrome? The hardest thing is our entire life revolves around it. Um, it is kind of like all consuming her immune system isn't great. So like the first two years of her life, we isolated during flu and RSV season. So that meant like nobody came over. We didn't go anywhere. Um, we've missed so many events. Like we've missed weddings. We've, I mean, we've canceled her own birthday party. Um, we've missed bar mitzvahs. We've, we've out of like four Christmases, we've gone to one family Christmas Eve and like she had been discharged from the hospital like two days before it just completely consumes your life. Um, I, I feel like, you know, it, it, it can definitely impact relationships. You know, there's definitely been a lot of loss of relationships, um, friendships that I just haven't been able to commit to anymore because Adeline takes up so much of my time um, I like kind of struggle as a mom to like connect with other moms, you know, um, when moms are, you know, we're doing drop off and someone's talking about like teething or 
that like I just can't you know, connect or relate. So I often feel like even when I'm with people, I can feel like isolating. Um, it just takes up a lot of your time and energy. And sometimes I feel like that's like all week, not all the time, but sometimes I'm like, this is all I am. It's like, like a medical provider, early intervention provider. Like it's like, where's our kind of normal life, you know, like kind of thing. Um, so it's just a lot of time and it kind of consumes, consumes you. Cause a lot of people may not realize that your immune system comes from your gut, yes. right? So she gets sicker than most. Yes. Even at something that may not affect another typically not sick child, it will affect her very differently. So for example, she got sick around Thanksgiving and it took her three weeks to, she had a bug for like 24 hours, like a little stomach bug. And it took her three weeks of like being up all night, retching, gagging, crying because her stomach just, it took so long for her to kind of get back up to baseline. And then right when she got kind of better from that, she got RSV and adenovirus and we ended up hospitalized and her gut completely paralyzed it's called ileus and basically her gut was so inflamed it couldn't handle anything and it actually was like leaking because your gut makes its own secretions and her hers couldn't even handle the secretions because of this ileus so just like a little sort of cold or virus we ended up inpatient for 10 days um with like her gut completely shut down. And just recently we've kind of gotten her back up to where she was. So it does impact her a lot and it impacts us like where we go and what we do during this time of year. We've gotten, we've isolated ourselves less and less as she's gotten older, partly because she's gotten somewhat stronger and and partly because she's a toddler and like staying at home (laughs) is not really, you know, there's only so much home you can really do. Sure. And we did start school this year. So that's been like huge for her two days a week. But the hardest thing is, is the time. And then, and then the fragility of her, she can really scare you sometimes. You think like, all right, she's doing good. We're in a good place. And then this last admission, I was like, oh gosh, she's so fragile. You know, you, you, even though, you know, it can be like a big smack in the face reminder when something like this happens. What helps her when she's in the hospital and she's feeling so sick? Is she kind of clingy and just wants to be next to you or, or what helps her when she's there? Yeah, she is, um, in life, she's not clingy, clingy to me at all, but in the hospital, she's extremely clingy. Um, like I really can't even go to the bathroom unless I have like a nurse with her. Mm-hmm. I don't leave the room. I don't leave the floor. So I help my husband helps my, her grandparents. Um, we just try to bring as much home as we can to the hospital. So she has like, we bring so much stuff. John is like, are you kidding? But, you know, when she was little, her mobile, I still bring all her bedding. She has her friends. She has her toys. She has 
like her clothes, like I am kind of crazy where she rarely is in like a hospital gown Mm -hmm. because I just want her to feel comfortable. I don't want her to feel clinical. Like it stinks being in the hospital, but I want her to feel like this is my blanket. This is my pillow. Um, these are my toys. And so I try to bring as much from like home as I can. Um, and we try to just really make it as fun as possible. I bring a million toys. She has like special toys that I only bring when we're inpatient. Um, she has, we do a lot of like picture schedules. She'll, she'll know like what her day will look like and then like where the fun will be. I definitely try to get child life involved at the hospital and get them. If there's like any sort of music therapy or art therapy, I try to get them to come see her because she likes that kind of, she actually loves that both of the music therapy and art therapy. Or if there's like a dog on the unit, like I'm really proactive, even if they're on another unit, I'm like, well, if they have time, all those, <laughs> you know, Addie would love to see them. And a lot of times they end up, you know, just like a little extra nudge, you know, they, I can get these extra things for her to kind of keep break up the day and keep it you know, feeling not so much like the hospital, you know? Sure, absolutely. And and so that helps her. But what do you think has helped you or who has helped you the most as you've kind of gone throughout Addie's life? So I would say the one thing that's really helped me is like sharing our story. I share, you know, across our social media and um, on the blog and that has really helped me kind of like find a little community of moms and mostly moms. I don't want to leave out the dads, but it's mostly (laughs) moms um, who kind of like share a similar life. So by telling my story, I've been able to form these connections. Sometimes it's like a friendship. Sometimes it's just like I'm helping someone, which I love. Um, That's helped me a lot. I've learned from other moms that way. And it just makes you feel like you have like somebody in the world who like understands. Um, My parents and my husband have helped a ton. Addie's godmother has been incredible. And then I did, I did recently this past May start therapy. um, And blogging has definitely helped because it gives me like my own thing. It kind of gives me my own outlet. It gives me like something else to do besides like just Addie's medical stuff. Um, it kind of makes me feel like, like I'm working again and I'm doing my own thing and I have like something I need to do for, you know, it just gives me something that I'm like really passionate and excited about to do, even though it still very much revolves around her having that has really helped me feel like a, like a person again. (laughs) Um, and therapy has definitely helped for sure. Um, I've been seeing a therapist since May and that has helped. And my husband and I recently changed our diet this past June. Um, and we've gotten rid of like some carbs and sugar and things like that. And I would definitely say that that has helped my anxiety and my energy levels for sure. What would you tell a parent whose child may be going through getting this diagnosis or they're just kind of at the beginning in that NICU stay? What would you tell them? I always tell parents to like let themselves feel all the things they're feeling. I feel like there's so many expectations of like kind of what you should feel and how you should react. Like 
for instance, like when you bring your baby home from the NICU, you should feel just so happy and you are happy, but a lot of times there's so many other, you're feeling overwhelmed, you're feeling anxious, you're still dealing with a lot of health issues. You might feel mad, you might feel sad. And so I always like tell parents to kind of let themselves like feel what they feel when they feel it kind of like, and forgive themselves for how they're reacting or feeling because I always felt there were so many expectations placed on me. Like Addie's home from the hospital and I would be so miserable when we got home. I call it my hospital hangover. I'm like so good when we're there and then we come home and I have like a crash in all ways. And I've like learned that, you know what, that's my cycle. Like I'm have to be there for her impatient. I have to be like at my best. And so I'm blocking out, you know, my feelings of tiredness and my feelings of anxiety. And like, when I come home, I feel it. So I've always shared parents to just feel, let themselves feel. I've also would tell parents that like, unfortunately there's not like one answer. I was found that with, I just wanted like a fix and unfortunately, with short bowel syndrome, there's a lot of things you can do to get in a better place, but there's not just like one drug, one surgery, one treatment that's going to kind of fix everything. And it's such a spectrum of a diagnosis. I kind of like equate it to autism because, you know, you can have short bowel syndrome and your gut can adapt and start functioning and you can live like a completely typical life and, or you can have short bowel syndrome and be TPN dependent forever. Um, so it really, really varies. And so it's kind of like one story isn't the way it's going to go. Cause people will often ask me like, how did I get Addie off of TPN? And you know, it might not be the same for their kid. Their kid might be off TPN sooner or they might be on it longer. It's, so I tell parents to just, you know, when you know one kid with short bowel syndrome, you don't know short bowel syndrome. It's such a spectrum. Um, and then I also really encourage parents to get a second opinion, to seek out the specialists in the field. Um, you know, there are so many times where people stay with a provider that might not be the right provider because they're a nice doctor, because they trust them. And I know because I did that. I felt comfortable with our team. It's it's not as though there was anything wrong with them. But, you know, like I said before, it was just so much kind of guessing. Addie was like this kind of mystery, this kind of, huh, we've never seen this before. And like you want to be with someone who's seen this before <laughs> and has a plan. And so I do encourage parents, get that second opinion, seek out the specialists in this area because it is a rare disease. And when it's rare, it means a lot of people have not had it, a lot of experience with it. So you need to find the people that know short bowel syndrome if you want your child to be really, really successful. That's such good advice. And I'm so glad that you're saying that. Do the research and figure out where to go. Yeah. Because it's worth the travel. I mean, you do it to Boston every four to six weeks, and I'm sure that's not easy, but it's probably worth it. It's worth it. And there's so many like travel grants out there and like flight things that you can do. Like you can make it work. I mean, obviously it's a huge commitment and maybe you don't make it work every four to six weeks. Maybe you make it work once a year, but 
I just find that so many people are unhappy yet they stay because the doctor's nice or they're comfortable or they trust them or like the doctor, you know, may have done surgery and help their child. And so then you really feel connected and feel this like bond towards that doctor because they've, you know, you've trusted them with your baby and they've come back. Okay. And so you feel this bond. And I always say like, it can be the best doctor, but not, it might not be the right doctor for you. If you could describe what Addie has taught you through these experiences, what would you say? I mean, she's taught me like what strength is. Like, I just feel like she's the strongest person I've ever met. I'm going to probably cry. Um, she perseveres no matter what she forgives incredibly quickly. Um, she's super sensitive to others needs. And she's taught me that even when, you know, we're going through a rough time, I need to like think outside of like our bubble and, you know, remember others <laughs> because I can get like really trapped in sort of what's going on with her, you know, of course, but, um, and taught me to like kind of make the best out of every situation because she will always like brighten the situation, brighten the mood. And then like, I tried to do the same for her. Um, it could be really crappy, but like, you're not going to know that we think it's crappy. Like, you're not going to know that we, you think that we're stressed out. Like we're going to fake it. We're going to have fun. We're going to make the best of this. It, no matter what, you know, I get that's covered in vomit in the ED at three o'clock in the morning. Like we're singing the songs <laughs> and have the family dance party and like try to, you know, and she's really taught me that she's taught me to be strong, to persevere, to make the best out of everything. I've learned that from my three-year-old. <laughs> <laughs> what makes her smile the most? Do you think what, what does she love doing? The thing about Addie is Adeline loves life. Like she loves everything. Her teacher even said at the conference, like, I can't say there's one thing she really likes. She's really excited about everything and her excitement just kind of rubs off on everyone. And I would say that she really summed her up. I mean, she likes, she's happy about every single thing that we do, that we say, that we're take her to. She just really loves life. And of course, like the things that make her the happiest right now are like my husband, our dog, um, my parents, she's obsessed with them. But like, I would have to say, like, I couldn't say, oh, she loves swimming or she loves outside or she loves the beat because she loves it all. She loves it all. Yeah. Oh, I love that. <laughs> well, you have mentioned that you have a blog. Um, and if people would like to connect with you or follow along um, with your story, where can they, where can they do that? Um, so our blog is she got guts.com. Um, it's, and you can follow me there. And then we're also on Instagram at addie.bell. It's A-D-D-I-E dot B-E-L-L-E. And on Facebook, uh, she got guts. So I would love to connect with people. It's something I'm, I really enjoy doing. 
Thank you so much to Stephanie for being so honest and vulnerable during this interview. And thank you so much to all of the parents, medical professionals, students, and child life specialists who are listening to this podcast. Please share this podcast with a parent or loved one you think may benefit from hearing Stephanie's story. And please rate and review this podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Follow along with me on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. I'm at at ChildLifeOnCall. I welcome your feedback and appreciate your support. Thank you so much, and we will have a new episode next week.